Hey guys, before the show starts, I wanted to give you a heads up that there was an issue with the sound coming in from Max's mic, especially at the beginning of the conversation, but we had such a great conversation, so please bear with me through the sound issue because we had some real, real tennis pro talk that you won't want to miss. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. My name is Jennifer Gelhaus, and I'm your host. Today, I'm excited to talk with Max Lepiver. He is the director of rackets at the Bowhouse and Field Club on Martha's Vineyard. Max has been directing programs for many years at clubs like the Sibonoy Country Club in Bronxville, New York, Aspetuck Valley Country Club in Westport, Connecticut, and the Stanwich Club in Greenwich, Connecticut. Max has also taught at some amazing clubs like the Breakers in Palm Beach, the Jupiter Island Club, and the Westmore Club in Nantucket. He's a professional platform tennis player with dozens of titles, and he has held a ranking as high as number three in the country. Max is also the owner of L'Academy Elite Paddle Camps. He's from France, and he came to the U.S. at age 15 to play professional tennis. He played for the University of Miami here in Florida. Welcome, Max. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Did I get all your background info right? Yeah, I think you did. Okay. Right on point. You have a lot of experience, especially directing, which is surprising because you're a young guy. <laughs> so that's awesome. But you came to the U.S. at such a young age. How was that experience for you? And was that a huge culture shock? Yeah, massive, massive culture shock. But I loved it. I was such a big fan of the U.S., the development programs and the opportunities to, to play pro and play college tennis. We don't have those same opportunities back home. You know, it's kind of like once you turn 18 in, in France, you're either going to college or starting a profession or you have to turn pro. There's not really you can you can maybe play club tennis, which is kind of popular, but doesn't pay a whole lot of money. So you can't really make a living off of that. So there are not many options. And I was kind of faced at, a, at that age. We had been to the U.S. once or twice to train. And I really love the fact that. As a backup, I could end up, you know, in college or I could do college and potentially turn pro and kind of follow my dream of, of playing professional tennis. So it's a it was a no brainer in my parents mind and my mind to, to come up here. Awesome. And how did you decide that you wanted a career in the tennis industry? How did that come about? It's I've I've loved, you know, sharing my passion for the sport from such an early age. I started teaching, which is crazy. I started teaching as a way of making money to to support my tour aspirations, I started teaching at 17 oh, at the wow. Breakers. I was uh, I was kind of a hitting pro. It started, you know, not really knowing much about teaching, but started hitting with clients, with members from an early age. And I loved the idea of, of being able to share something and see people's faces just light up when you share something that makes sense. It was it was I love the service industry, so I love making people happy. And and mm-hmm. I just from an early age, I kind of knew that maybe I would even end up in teaching tennis down the road, even if. I didn't follow a business, you know, my business background and whatnot. So that was always in the back of my head. Is that what you studied? Do you study business in school? Yeah, I did international business, but but really didn't really have anything specific in mind when I got out and didn't have any connections, you know. And unfortunately, when I got out, I was looking for potentially a regular business job in, in the business field. But, you know, you're starting at like a complete low bottom of the, the totem pole making coffee or, you know, starting with, without much. And I really wasn't looking forward to that and I had opportunities to teach at a pretty good rate and and at a some of these really nice clubs so that for me that was kind of a no-brainer to to quickly leave the business industry and get into tennis. Was that your first 
teaching job? That's a great first job if if that's the case. Yeah, I got super lucky. I was looking to make money in the summers as a way of supplementing my, you know, my traveling for tour tournaments and things like that. And I, I had a friend that worked at the Breakers just as a as a regular attendant in the tennis shop. And that's kind of how I got I got connected to the director and started teaching the academy kids in the afternoons and doing all the camp stuff. So I was really like a, a basic hitting pro and, and junior pro in the beginning. But still at 17, I think I was teaching, which is insane. I was teaching during the, I would come back during the holidays and we were really busy during spring oh. breaks. And, and so I was, they needed, they always needed help. So at 17, I think I was, I was teaching already at $150. I wasn't making $150 an hour, but my lesson rate was already $150, which is, that was the lowest rate for the lowest pro there, which is insane. And this was back in 1999 or 2000, like early 2000, which is, which is crazy. I wonder how much a lesson is there now. <laughs> well, so I think at the time, Kathy Rinaldi was kind of the touring. They always get a touring pro there, at least at the time. There was, a, you know, Kathy Rinaldi was like top three in the world in the years. She's a Fed Up Cup, Fed Up Cup captain. I think she was she was charging at the time, like, I think 250 an hour. You don't usually uh, hear of that kind of pricing, at least not in Florida. In the Northeast, certainly, but... Yeah. In Florida, that's pretty much unheard of. So I mean, that's, it depends that's, on the club, right? I mean, yeah. you're a fantastic club. Yeah, it also runs a bit like a resort. You know, it's kind of a half members and and half just guests. So they can commend those rates because it's a fan, you know it's a fancy place to go stay at. So a lot of the people that are coming here are just guests, so they're not really paying attention to what they're paying. They're you know yeah. people are getting charged quite a bit, but it's they, they commend those rates and they have really good pros. Yeah, and so how did you get into platform tennis? So I was in Florida working in Palm Beach and kind of got tired of doing the whole year round. You know, after I left college, I was doing a little bit of the year round around that area in Palm Beach and Jupiter Island a bit as well. But the as nice as the winters were, the winters to for me there were too short, meaning there's so many days where you're teaching eight, nine hour days and 90 degree weather, you know, in October, and November, even in December, there's some really hot days and it's just... I needed a change of scenery where I could do, you know, I wanted kind of four seasons. It was a little too much of the same. And it's not easy to teach in Florida year round. It's it's yeah. so hot in the summers. And, and the winter, I think for me, is like January, February, maybe where the temperatures are really mild and really nice. The rest of the time, it's still really hot. So when you're doing, as you're aging, when you're doing like seven to nine hours a day in, in 85 degree weather, that takes a toll on you. Absolutely. I, I contacted some friends that I knew were working for other clubs up here and got connected to come with the winter here in an indoor place called Rye Rocket Club, which is one of the premier indoor places here in, in Rye, New York. And that's how I started. And then quickly thereafter, found found a year-round job. At the time, I was still doing Nantucket in the summers. So I would do Nantucket and then back to Rye in the winter. But decided that I wasn't getting enough looks for director's job, uh, you know, on Nantucket Island, as good as the, the job is on your resume, you're not connected to the big director's job down in Fairfield County, which is like Greenwich, Westport, you know, all these fancy places, Westchester County. Yeah. And so decided to make the decision to take less money and uh, take a, an assistant pro job at a, at a high-end club. Yeah. Okay. Was, that was a smart thing. <laughs> it was a really smart thing. It was difficult because I was given in at the time, which was a lot. I think I probably made like $20,000 less than doing the, the Palm Beach or Nantucket slash Rye, where you could make more money with both jobs. I took probably a $20,000 cut. Wow. But the, which was big, you know, it's a lot of money for an assistant pro. But yeah. the, 
the opportunity to work at a really high-end club, but like it was a really good club on resume. It's actually the Spanish club, with who, which I became a director later on, uh, and get the experience and have that big name. It, it kind of gets you in the door for these big interviews. So once you started teaching up there year round, then that's when you started playing platform tennis and now you're running camps and doing the whole thing. How easy was that transition for you? I mean, I'm guessing it's pretty easy coming from tennis, but if you can speak on that. Yeah. So, you know, platform tennis is really like a Northeast sport. Like you don't really see it in many places. It's kind of a niche sport that's only played at the country club level. One, because the courts are really expensive. To put in a court is about 120k because it sits on the platform and 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 I did it in the winter as a way to number one to expand my teaching my resume and to becoming a, a paddle pro you don't really have a choice if you want to have some good jobs in that area uh, and also as a way of passing time on the weekends to play tournaments and we had yeah. such a good friends that were playing and the transition is not that hard it's probably to become a top level. Battle Pro at the time, you probably had a two-year transition where you're trying to learn the game. The game is very different than tennis, but if you have racket skills, it's a huge advantage. Yeah. But it took me about two years to get from a complete beginner to get to like a top 20 player. And now that transition is much harder to make because the game's got way more depth. So now it probably it probably takes you it probably take you a couple of years to get to that top 20 because it's not it's not that easy. There's so many, so many good players. And how are your paddle camps? I'm guessing those are in the winter as well. How long have you been running those and, and where do you do them? What makes them special? Yeah, so I, I I just started the academy. I've been teaching paddle camps for many years, some of my own and some for other people. It's, uh, it's usually destination camps. People like we do them on Nantucket, we do some on the vineyard this year. And the idea is that, you know, people pre-season, before their season starts, members will come up and it's a perfect way to go spend three days on, on Nantucket, have a good time, have great restaurants, and then take some instruction. It's a, it's a 10-hour, three-day course. So people take two and a half the first day, five hours the next day, and two and a half the next day. So it's a 10-hour course over three days where we bring the top teaching instructors in the country to instruct and give them a sort of a warm-up to their season. Season starts mid-October, so these camps usually take place in September and early October. Okay. So do you think that the people that are playing platform, do they stop playing tennis in the winter and dedicate a platform, or are they kind of still playing indoor tennis and platform? It's a little bit of both. It, it really varies. Some people are hooked on paddle or platform tennis, so they'll play only that. And a lot of clubs have made the right move here in this area to put bubbles up rather than not having that there. Everybody's trying to, to put bubbles up to offer more amenities to membership. Mm -hmm. So now I'd say the majority of the clubs, people are playing both. They'll play, they'll play once or twice tennis and and tennis and paddle once, once a week or twice a week. They're very affluent. There's a lot of money here. So, you know, a yeah. lot of the members are not scared to spend money. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you... Not that you corrected me, but you kind of said platform, yeah, paddle, because I know people call it paddle, but I find it so confusing because you have paddle, and then yeah. I played another version of it out in California that was, it was written like paddle, but I think maybe they call it paddle, but it wasn't paddle. So I think like there are so many different names, and I think it, it needs to be cleaned up a little bit because there's so many things that sound the same. And I don't know, to me, it's like, I was going to call it platform tennis because I can, I can almost, I almost have issue like, you know, 
differentiating between paddle and pedal. Sometimes they sound the same to me. And I'm like, wait, which one is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, I, I, compl I completely agree. But yeah, the official name is Platform Tennis. We call it paddle here because there's been nothing else that's rivaled. Right. Now, the emergence of paddle, I think we need to make the distinction for sure. What do you think is the most common mistake that paddle players make? So you mean that, that platform tennis players make? Yes, <laughs> platform. Yeah, I'm like... <laughs> As in the most, the most common. I mean, it's a game of errors. It's not a game of winners. Yeah. So it's it's probably from a tennis player's background. When you come in as a tennis player, you look to be super offensive. You know, in tennis, we usually whoever's most offensive tends to win the point. You know, whoever's willing to dictate play. It's not necessarily the case in platform tennis because the dimensions of the court are so much smaller. Yeah. And you have chicken wire behind you to bring the ball back into play, so you can play the ball off the, the wires. And so the, the most common error is, an, to sound silly, but it's an unforced error. People like patience, and you have to have way more patience. And what about for tennis? What would you say is the most common mistake you see in the, in the people that you're teaching? Oh, and the people that we teach? It's probably, probably strategy, I think, you know, decision-making. Uh, at the country club level, it's typically, I mean, it's some of it is skill set, but for the most part, it's, it's poor decision-making on, on shot selection. It's interesting. I, I haven't played platform, but I've played padel here in Florida and it was really fun. And from what I can remember, it was exactly what you said. I mean, I was, I feel like I was trying to end the point. There's such an emphasis on trying to end the point, but really you do have to be a lot more patient. And, and what really I found really difficult was hitting off the walls because <laughs> I'm just not used to that. Yeah. So the, ball comes off, the ball comes off really hot. Yeah. And you have to back up, back away from it. And, and yeah, that whole concept like blew my mind, but eventually you get it. And you know, it's, it's so, so fun. But what skills would you say in general have helped you advance the most in, in your career saying maybe like it's your playing skills because you were a, such a good player or your management skills, your people skills, your teaching skills, what would you say has, has advanced you the most in your career? I mean, so I'm in a very niche business. You know, we we have really most of my career has been teaching at really high end, prestigious places, and so it's to me it's all about the energy and I would say organization. So for to be successful in the particular field that I'm in, it's about having really good energy on court, so you can you can create a really good rapport with members. Um, and off the court, it's really about being super organized. What we do off the court as directors is not super hard, but what makes our job, in my opinion, really difficult is that you have to do it with the same quality day in and day out. So yeah, anybody can step up into my role and do it for a week, but can you do it for 365 days every day? And that's that's the challenge as a director in, a, in this market and in the really affluent clubs is it doesn't take much to make a mistake and for people to be really upset. You, you have so little room for error, depending on the types of memberships where people are used to being treated, you know, amazingly well, and they're expecting the best service. So by far organization off the court as you're, as an admin person is super important. Mm -hmm. And on court, it's, it's less about teaching. It's certainly, it's important to know how to teach and how to teach certain types of people. But the thing that most people look for is they're looking to have fun. They're, you know, it's a, especially when you're at a club, a year-round club, like, you know, people don't come and 
yeah, they're interested in learning and getting better, but but the primary skill set that, that a pro needs is to be able to recognize what makes somebody have a good time on the court. And you have to have incredible energy, you know, day in and day out to really get that out of members. If you come off the court, you could be the best teacher in America. If you come off, you come on the court and you don't have a lot of energy, the people are not really having fun, you're going to have very poor results, at least in the market that I'm in. Because people, I would say, like, at the end of the lesson, our number one goal is make sure someone's had fun. And as a secondary goal, we hope that they learned a lot from the lesson. But the number one thing is to make sure they come off and happy and wanting to have that experience again. Yeah. You have to be personable, too. You have to have a personality, I feel like. And you have to be nice. I think yeah. if you're if you're trying to be a drill surgeon, it's not going to work out very well. Yeah, <laughs> Not, not, on, not in this particular type of, you know, in that, in that environment, the, the high-end country club environment, yeah, that's the wrong way to go. That's more the your academy, kind of high-level juniors or people that are coming in for a 4.5 camp and really want to get the most out of the instruction. But but that to be a director, that's that's probably not the way to succeed. You won't last very long. And, and similarly, what's hard about our job with high energy is like a good pro will have good energy for the first three, four hours. And then we'll temper off in the afternoon and maybe not teach as well. And a great pro or someone that's been in this business and that, that does it really well, will have the same energy from, from 8 a.m. on to, to the last lesson at 5 or 6 p.m. And that's hard to find. Yeah, I feel like something that helps me with that is the fact that it's different people. I don't know that I could do like the same group for that long every day, you know, at least with us, it's like you, you hit a reset button because it's a different person that you're interacting with. So if you get sick of them, at least you only do with them for a, for an hour. And if you love them, great. You know, most of the times you do love them, but you get that kind of refresh button every hour, hour and a half. So it's, that's at least what gets me through. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I also certainly think in our business, there's not enough. One of the things that I don't like about our business is either you work like a dog or you don't work at all. It's, you know, yeah. in this in this type of business, you don't get, you and I have talked about this off, offline a bit, but I'm, I'm on the same boat as you in that regards. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of pushing my pros to 40 plus hours every week, especially if they're planning on continuing on in this business and becoming directors or wanting to, or seeking a career in the business. You know, it's a, it's a difficult job to do with the right amount of energy. And, you know, I really happen to, I try to keep my pros between 35 and 40 hours at the most. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. When we get busy, you're yeah, going to have to yeah. be doing more hours than that. But it's not it's not ideal. And I wouldn't want that for, for many stretches of time, you know. We also yeah. have, in, in at least when I was at the Sandwich Club or or these clubs, year-round clubs, we also work six days a week. And it's insane. It's not It's not right. In a lot of ways, but that's kind of the way the the jobs are set up. And you know, in exactly. my previous job, I try to set up everybody for at least two days a week because you have to maintain a sane life. You have to be happy and have the time to do more than just want to sleep all day on your day off because that's the only day that you have to recuperate. So, yes. oh my gosh, I sorry to interrupt you. I was you just got me thinking about a conversation I was having the other day with Rich Nair. He has a, a huge newsletter that comes out about the tennis industry. But he was saying that the main problem that he sees in the tennis profession right now is burnout. Yeah. And it's so apparent because that's exactly how our pay structure is designed for burnout, you know, because we get paid most of the times. I mean, if you're unless you're in a leadership role, like director or head pro or something like that, you're getting paid by the hour. And if you're not 
teaching, you're not making money. So, and if you get paid really well, it really motivates you to work more. So it's kind of hard to say no to money when it's just like right there for the taking. It's so easy to burn yourself out taking eight plus hours daily and not taking any days off. I don't know how some pros do that. I can't do it. And it's just, it's designed to be like that. And I feel like that's something that probably needs to change in our industry. Yeah, there's there's a couple there's a couple big loopholes that have been hurting our business. And number one, there's a massive difference between an assistant pro total income versus a director's total income. So it's almost like you have to burn yourself out completely to become a director. But by yes. the time you become a director, things don't get easier. They get they get tougher. You know, you have more things to manage, and so it's not like you're going to get to recuperate. So if you spend all your energy trying to become a director, it's not like your life gets easier then it only gets harder. So I think the, the clubs need to be better at understanding that it's in their best interest to offer salaries even to their assistant pros to help them, you know, make a little bit of money, you know, number one, running little things here and there, become starting to get some admin experience, but without making them feel like they have to earn all their money by teaching on court. And it's hard to find the fact, like you said, past the director and the head pro, usually the, your next assistant doesn't really make a salary. He has to make, or she has to make all, all of her money on the court. And at least the burnouts, if you're, you know, if you're looking to make a lot of money. So I think that's a, that's a really big problem in our industry. And it's also, I feel like management has made some mistakes, you know, club management has made some mistakes and, and not making the jobs appealing, uh, making you feel like you have to work so hard so that the pro eventually says, you know what, I, I really can't do this anymore and just ends up picking another job or ends up trying to find a place that will give him a better deal. Mm-hmm. To me, it's mind blowing that people try to, you know, clubs try to hire and don't put their best foot forward in making sure they're giving you the best possible life. It doesn't have to be financial, but, you know, like more vacation time or they want it should be in their best interest to make you happy. So you give them a 20 year career rather than thinking, you know, yeah. as soon as I, as soon as I can find a better job with a better, you know, better deal, I'm leaving. And that's what's happening in our industry, at least in the niche market, like country clubs, that's what's happening. People are, you know, it's like musical chairs because if the clubs are not treating you right, the pro is going to get their experience and then they're going to look for the next best thing. Yes. And um, it's also a different generation that, that is entering the workforce on the tennis industry right now, where I think that's going to be valued more is having some kind of stability. I think there's a lot of older pros that for whatever reason, they were okay with it. And, and, you know, they were, it worked for them, I guess, to work on an hourly basis. And a lot of pros go into their fifties, sixties, mid sixties, all the way up to retirement, even working that way that's not really sustainable in today's economy and and everything that we have going on today so if the tennis profession wants to advance i think i think that there's some changes that need to happen if you want to attract good talent to to the tennis profession i think those things need to be reevaluated for sure yeah, I totally agree. You know, the, the other thing that's difficult is a lot of us, I mean, I'm not one of those because I wanted to be in the tennis industry, but but a lot of us, you know, a lot of the pros ended up teaching as a second option, not as their main option. It's kind of like, well, I can make this kind of money and I'm not willing to to stay in my field of study because it takes too long to get to a place where I can make a similar amount of money. So what's difficult is you can make a a lot of money as a younger pro in the beginning because it's it's a lot for for being 21 years old. You can you throw you get thrown more money than you would make working in a different field. 
Yeah. And so a lot of pros end up picking that because they they think, but then you kind of you can plateau really quickly if you don't work for the right program or the right pro or the right place. It's easy to get plateaued, and and I agree with you. It, something needs to change in the industry to make it more of a you know a lifestyle kind of job versus more like I'm going to burn out, make as much money as I can, and then potentially look for something else. And that's why you know I think. I kind of started this podcast too. We were talking about this a little bit offline is why I started this podcast was to create this environment where pros can talk about whatever's going on in the tennis industry. You know, money is a big aspect of it. But you were saying that at least in your area, you guys kind of meet or you have a group of pros that meet and you and you guys talk about kind of what kind of money you should be charging for lessons and you kind of work together with those things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest things in these directors jobs is that, you know, pros it's, it's, it's a little bit of, for a while, it's very competitive. So everyone for, for a long time has been looking to do, you know, take the cheaper job or, you know, take a lesser job to beat the other guy or the other girl that's going for the gig. So everyone's like selling themselves short and that's because the pros haven't been working together. I can guarantee you that, and I know that for a fact, that all GMs in Fairfield County and Westchester County know exactly what we're making, what each club is making, what each club is paying, what each general manager is making. And that that allows them to, you know, to come up with contracts and things like that that are not, not always in our best interest. And in our area, we haven't done a great job. We're doing We're doing better now, but we haven't done a great job of getting together and discussing, hey, what's your, as a director, what's your salary here? What are you charging? Are you, is the club taking anything from you? Are you W2? Are you 1099? But we now have this great, this great group of pros. We're all in a, in a WhatsApp group. And we've kind of, over the last couple of years, we're sharing all the info of what we're making so that oh. you, you can have comparable, if you have a comparable setup as someone else, you can compare what they're making versus what you're making. And that can help you negotiate better for your next contract or that can at least under, make you understand your worth to the club and, and what's being offered out there. So you can always reevaluate your options and know whether you have a good deal or whether you don't have such a good deal. Yeah, I think that this is kind of where the teaching associations should be stepping in and helping more is in guiding the pros through this process, because to me, it should be pretty standard, say, if you have a club with X number of members and they charge X amount of money for membership, like you, based on that, you already know, okay, how much should they be paying their tennis and how big of a facility that you're running, right? I think just based on those things, it should be kind of standard in the industry and then, you know, bonuses or, or whatever, you know, but there's no such thing. And it's, there, the water is very muddied when it comes to having even an idea of what anybody's making in the tennis industry. Cause the ones that are making a lot of money, they don't want you to know that they're making a lot of, of money. Course. Of course. And the ones that are not making a lot of money are making it seem like they're making more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah you're a hundred percent right. And, and I agree that the associations need to do a lot better in, in formulating contracts or in at least giving you baselines of, of different types of clubs and what should be expected there. So when you go into negotiations with a club, you know, you're already, you're already somewhat protected with what a salary should be worth there, what your hourly should be and, and things like that. It's, it's like such, you'd be surprised even in our area within 10 miles, 
you have guys making double the salary and 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 some are making way more on hourly rate, some are making way less, and it's it's all over the map and it, and it really shouldn't be. And that's how pros get taken advantage of. And that's also how when you're a head pro looking to become a director, because the title is so important, and we talked about this earlier, because there's such a big difference between what a head pro makes versus what a director makes, at least in, in these affluent clubs. Yeah. When a head pro earns a director's job, they'll literally take anything because anything's going to be better than what they're making, but they're they're willing to give to the club back 25%, 20% of the lesson rate or the total income just because they need to earn their director's title, which will then help them move on to a better club. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like this vicious cycle where, you know, assistant pros or head pros are taking these jobs, but taking them at any price. Yeah. Because, because they need this title to help them get a better job down the road. And it's it's completely wrong. And the club loses out. That club that's paying that stake and money away from them is losing out because in three years, that pro is going to get another job and you'll lose them and you're back from you're back to scratch. But that's why you see a lot of, at least again, I, I know of this area well. I don't know much about the other markets, but I know obviously the, the Northeast super well. And that's all, all these jobs are, it's, we call it musical chair because you'll see like a pro is fairly dissatisfied with what she's making or he's making. And next thing you know, three years later, he's taking, he's taking or she's taking a better job because the pay is much better and they're treating the, the person much better. And and so now the, this old club that they were at completely loses out on an amazing person that was doing great for their program. And now they have to start back from scratch. So it's just, it's just interesting that we're so far off and you're so far off on stage too. I know in Chicago, they make their salaries are really high and their RLEs are much lower. It, there's a really big spectrum of what, what a director makes in this area. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard that also, and I'm not too familiar with, academies and that and all that but i've heard at least what people talk about that in some of these big name academies they'll pay pros 10 bucks an hour and people just take those jobs kind of just to have it on their resume like hey i worked at this academy this really big name right and yeah it's just kind of a shame that people kind of lower themselves to that because if you should know your worth yeah go ahead no, no, you're you're so right. And here we have a lot of indoor places, and that's what they do. They'll pay you, you know, they'll pay you like really low rates, but they'll give you like 55 hours a week. So you end up making the same amount of money, but you're working twice as hard as you normally would be if you were paid what you were worth. And that's how those places make their money. Uh, the, co- the country club level is a little bit different. Country club level, you're going to make a decent amount of money as a pro, but those jobs are harder to get, and you have to have, a, I, I would think a better skill set to become a, a country club pro because you have to have a lot more things in your bag and your, in your tool bag to be considered for a position. Yes. As we were talking about earlier, whereas say an Academy pro, if they're an amazing tennis player and if they coach at a really high level, that's all you need. You, you can be tougher on people. You don't, you don't need to, like you yeah. said earlier, you don't need to understand, you know, the relationship that you have with the person across from you. Um, in my opinion, and I'm a little biased. The country club teaching at the, the high level, the prestigious clubs, is the, probably the hardest one because people are expecting such high quality and such big things from you all the time. So let's talk about that, actually. You can get in some sticky situations sometimes at clubs because sometimes members can be tough. And even though most of the times they're wonderful, even if it's just one member who... It's quite rude or says something that 
it's just so off. How do you handle that? Or how would you recommend somebody to handle a situation where you just have someone that's just completely off and just comes at you with something that you're like, what the heck? You know, like you, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Like, how yeah, 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 how do you handle that? <laughs> yeah, so you, you have you have to keep your cool. You know, it's uh, you have to distinguish whether that person's mad at you because you're not doing your job correctly, or you know, maybe you're they're not satisfied, or you have to figure out whether they're just having a bad day, which happens to to everybody. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. you got in 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 this business, you got to be super level headed. You can't take anything personally. As difficult as that may be, even if it feels directed at you, you have to be able to just in one ear, out the other, and just try to make make the lesson enjoyable and do the best you can to manage that person's behavior. It is very tough because sometimes their members can be really tough and sometimes they come in, you've done nothing wrong, but they were just having a bad day. And and sometimes that one member that's really difficult is just going to take it out on you just, just because. So it's it's very challenging, but I, the best advice I can give is is don't take it personally. It's going to happen. It's going to happen to the best of us. You can have a pro that's been the most respected director in the area and that's still going to happen. And just try to find things to, to try to find ways to make the lesson fun and just kind of get their minds off, off what they were thinking. It's, but it's, but it's not easy and it's not easy to, to not take it personally. Yeah. I think that's key. Absolutely. Is to not take it personally because most of the times it has nothing to do with you. A lot of times it's in, it's even, it can even be something that's out of your control. You know, yeah. but you're the one that's getting the brunt of it. So, yeah, it can be very difficult. And you're right. You have to be so level headed. And sometimes you might be tired from being on court, but you still have to carry yourself in, in such a professional way. And I think that's really what separates like the really good directors at these amazing clubs from maybe a director at a public facility or or at a different type of place is that they are just so good at handling those situations and at handling people and at, at staying calm. I mean, in the Hamptons, my boss, he was like the best at that. It, I was, I was like, wow, I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're so right. And it's, it's, it's difficult to do, but you know, being diplomatic is the, in this business is the best way to go. You, you can't pick sides and you certainly can't, can't lose your cool. You know, people won't forget that, you know? And, and so I completely agree with you. It's just, you know, and, and as you get into more of those situations and it happens more throughout your career, cause it'll happen, you know, you start handling it better and better and better. And, and hopefully it doesn't happen as often as, as it does sometimes, but it's, I completely agree, but it's just, yeah, for me, it's, it's about not taking personally and, and just, just move forward and try to make the best out of the situation. Yeah. And here, I, I always say, hear them out, then kind of maybe look into it and, and follow up. I mean, that's, you know, like the basic three things that you can do, right? Yeah. But some of these things come more naturally for some people than others. Some things do come naturally to just, just from having a tennis background and, and being around coaches and just growing up in the sport. But is there any particular skills that you would say you have had to work on consistently throughout your career that maybe that you're still working on now, or do you feel like it's all pretty natural to you? I mean, now it feels pretty, pretty, pretty much like second nature because I've been, despite my 39 young years, I've been doing it since I was 17. So I've been doing it for enough years that I've got the hang of it, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's to, to be successful. It's about creating a rapport with members so that they don't see you as an employee, but they see you as someone that can help them have a great time and have fun on the court. Once, once you have that level of respect and it, it takes, it takes a while. Once you create that level of respect with membership, you don't deal with nearly as many issues as you would when they're, they're getting to know you, you know, when they don't know you well enough, especially as you get older, you typically get a lot more respect from people because they know you've been doing it for a long time. The way, the way I like to call it, it's like, uh, you know, in the mafia, how you have to, you have to get made, you know, be, before you become family or it's, it's kind of the same thing. I know it sounds, it's a, it's a funny analogy, but it's not so far off in the sense that yeah. when, when you go work at a club and people don't know you, you kind of have to get made before they give you their trust and their, their fun and their easy behaviors. In the beginning, they're going to be tough and they're going to be testing you to see if you've got what it takes to become, to be good for, for the specific program you're working at. And not everybody, but a lot of people will. For and sure. so you have to you have to create a rapport and a relationship with these people very quickly so that they understand that you're just you're just like them. You know, you're you come from a different background, probably. But but yeah. that you're you're looking to have fun. You have a family of your own. You know, you have so that you have a lot more respect for each other. And typically, then those people will be a lot easier to manage over time. You won't deal with as many of the issues as if somebody doesn't see you as someone they respect and they're more likely to take things out on you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you take care of yourself? I mean, this is a very, obviously a physically draining job to have, but also mental, you're dealing, you're talking all day, you're yeah. admin stuff, it's nonstop. How do you take care of your body, your mind, your health? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have, you, well, the first thing is you have to set boundaries and it's very difficult to do that in our business because we're oh, yeah. reaching we're, we have to be, you know, I'll get text. Uh, I mean, you, I've got some funny stories that way, but I'll get text at like 11 o'clock at night. Hey, I, any chance you can do a 6 a.m. tomorrow morning? I want to, I want to go out and play. Mm -hmm. You know, you're at 11, it's 11 p.m. You're in bed. Like you're, you know, you're, you're looking to rest and enjoy your evening and, or go to bed. And next thing you know, you got to answer this, potentially answer this member. Yep. And so you have to set boundaries for yourself as the things you have to learn to say no in a gracious way on things that you're not willing to compromise with. I think for pros, it's, it's gotta be a certain amount of hours per week. You know, if you're at a year round facility, you know, you, you have to cut your number of hours that you're going to do and only take so many lessons because you have to be able to manage your body and your mental. You need certain breaks. I like to work out because it gets me, you know, when I, when I finish work, I'm, I, I wish I could do it in the morning, but I like working out after work because I can take my anger out. <laughs> or take some of the energy left over from having a rough day or from being tired. It, it helps me kind of kind of shake everything loose before I go home. I, I, can't, I can't take baggage home. Otherwise, I'm going to have a terrible evening. So for me, the gym is a big is a big thing. Even if I'm dead or exhausted, I like going to the gym just to do something. And gets yeah. me thinking about other things and helps me cool off or helps me put my my working day aside. And by the time I go home, I'm I'm a normal person. And, I, you know, you can have conversations. And it's really hard. It's hard to when you've talked all day for like nine hours straight to come home and carry a conversation with your significant other or want to talk when when all you've been doing is literally just talking the entire time. So it, setting boundaries, you know, finding your passions and, and not compromising on that. For me, the gym is, you know, gym or activities are, are non-negotiables for me. If I can't if I can't go out, if I can't go swim or if I can go work out, I mean, it's 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 not possible for me to do my job correctly, especially as you age. And I think the mistake that I made as a, as a younger pro, because I got in this business so early, 
is I had zero respect for myself when I was teaching as a young guy. You know, I was like, hey, do you want to do an extra hour for me? Let's work from seven to eight. Yeah, sure. You know, can you come in at 6 a.m. and string five rackets before you teach your 8 a.m. lesson? Yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, because that back in my, culturally, back in our my age group, that's how we got the better jobs is you do whatever you're told and you squeeze as many as you can. You work your day off today, you know, I'm yeah. home and, and spend, you know, I'm not feeling great. Won't you cover for me? Yeah, sure. I'll do another eight hours on my day off. And next thing you know, you're completely burning yourself out. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think you have to set boundaries for yourself and you have to stick to doing the things that you like. You know, don't compromise on on not going to the gym if that's your thing or not taking that bike ride or or really spending spending your day off doing some fun stuff. I think to me that's 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 so key, you know, and, and mentally it's the same thing. You're what's hard about our job is is just as difficult physically as it is mental. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 the mental exhaustion is just as as bad as as the physical exhaustion. And that's what makes our job hard is you gotta balance both of them. But yeah, that that that's my take, you know. You and you have to make enough time for yourself to be able to do the things that you like. Yeah, and to and to keep yourself sane and providing good lessons too. I think, you know, for the last, I don't know, 10, 11 years, my main, my main job, my main time where I'm busy teaching is in the summer that, you know, at these clubs in the Northeast. And I usually like to work out almost daily. And when I'm in the summer, I like practically don't even work out. Like I'll go for a walk on the beach or I'll go on a hike or I'll just go meditate and just be quiet for an hour because I can't even talk to anybody. But, you know, I do kind of change my my routine a lot in the summer because my body just, I can't do it. Like yeah, really after right. teaching all that, I can't go in the gym. Forget it. There's yeah. no way I'll find the motivation to even do that. <laughs> but, you know, everyone is, and you're not wrong. There are days, I mean, not to make it sound like I'm, I'm, I go to the gym every single day. I'd, I'd like to in the summer. You're 100% right. Once we start, you know, having these crazy days, you know, I can't always do it. But, it, but it's more about what gets you to cool off and and find your inner peace so to say so that by the time you come into work the next day you have the same drive to do just as well as you did the day before and that's kind of what i was explaining the the average or okay pros don't have are not good enough at doing that they'll they'll give you 100 percent one day and then they'll the next day they come and their the lesson is just not as good they're not able to to have the same energy so you really you really have to take good care of yourself Talking about the gym, which what I found crazy, you know, you think because you're on your feet all day that you're in good shape. And a couple of years ago, oh. I started, yeah, it's such, it's such a, you know, we might look okay because we're, we're fit, you know, and yeah. naturally because we, we work a lot and we're on our feet all day, but you'd be surprised how weak your legs are. Mm-hmm. I started a couple, a couple of years ago, just messing around. I never work on my legs, you know, because I'm thinking I'm on my feet all day. I'm in great shape. And I started doing some squats with a bar. And I probably was cramping after three sets because I, I my legs got so weak. And one of the little tips for the pros out there is I started benching a little bit more just for legs. And within a couple of weeks, I, I felt like I could do seven hours on the court if I needed to and not feel anything. My issue is after, you know, in the past, I would teach five hours and my legs start, start you know, start feeling the pulls in my lower back and my hamstrings. And then it makes it hard for me to teach well because I'm hurting, I'm in pain. Yeah. And so my, my advice is like, what worked for me really well is getting to the gym and actually working on working on your legs. Most guys want to work on their chest, on their arms, or, you know, their arms, whatever the case may be. But when I found it makes such a difference because then I felt so sharp on the floor. 
Christ. I didn't feel any pain the whole day. Oh, wow. Um, and I wish I did that. I, I do it like once a week, but I wish I, I did it more so that you feel it actually helps in, in the fatigue section. I've struggled a lot with getting a good like program, doing weights or anything like that, because I cannot, it's not that I can't, I just have such a miserable time teaching tennis if I'm sore. It's like you want to provide a good lesson and if you're just tired and slacking and you can't bend, it, it shows, right? So you don't want to do that. You don't want to go too hard. But it's so funny what you said, because like last summer, I was on court a lot and I stopped doing any physical activity, I think for like a month. And, you know, I I was skinnier than ever. Was like, so I was like, I'm fine. I don't need to work out. But one day I was like, I'm going to do yoga because I hadn't even done yoga and I love yoga. So I did yoga and literally the next day I was sore and I was like, I am so pathetic. I am sore from yoga. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's so good for you and invest. Also, I invested in a couple of things. I invested in a, what is that called? A Theragun. Yeah. One of those, one of those massage guns. Mm -hmm. And literally, you'll see me in the morning, like 15 minutes before first, first lesson, like literally just like loosening up all the muscles. And it helps you last a couple of extra hours. I'll do it at night when I get home. And that was probably the best whatever it's pretty they're pretty expensive but actually you can find some that are cheaper now but it was probably the best purchase i ever made because now i get even if i don't have time to stretch i can at least use the gun and i really feel pretty sharp for for a few hours yeah. that would be my, my recommendation if you're doing a lot of hours get one of those because they make they make all the difference yeah i have i have the mini so i have yeah. the mini gun and then i just actually bought and and the same company that does that does the Theragun, they also sell this, but I didn't buy it from that company. I bought it from a different company. It's like these, what's it called? Stim pads. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, therapy for pain, or you can do a different type of therapy that actually stimulates your muscles. And I do it for my shoulder and it's it helps a lot. Because yeah, I'm so yeah. sick of doing the band exercises. I can't ugh, yeah. so sick of it. And this like really, really helps. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that I just bought that I think really is going to make a difference for me yeah, i think i think those are those are great purchases and it makes such a difference again like younger pros who don't have the pains and aches make the mistake of not taking care of their bodies and you get to you get to my age where you're starting to really like feel it more and then you end up regretting not having not having the preparation i mean it, it's a full-time job we have to treat it as such it's not a it's like any other industry you know the more prepared you are the, the more likely you are to succeed and for us being fit and being not having any pains and aches makes such a difference in how your day is going to go. I mean, if, if I'm teaching in pain, I'm not having, I'm, I may not show it, but I'm not having fun at all in the court. Yeah. It's not enjoyable. Yeah. It's not enjoyable for me to teach. If my, my, you know, my legs are hurting and I'm in, I'm cramping half of the time. It's, it's, it, it makes such a difference. And the member may see that it may see that if you're really having a bad day or if you're really not feeling great now, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're giving a, not a great experience to your members. Yeah. Or they see it in your face or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I just have a few more questions for you. I, I tend to ask these, you know, at the end is basically what's the grand slam moment of your tennis life and the double bagel moment of your tennis life. It can be teaching or it can be playing, whatever you want to talk about, but the best and the worst moment of your tennis life. <laughs> As in my teaching career? Uh, one. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, probably, you know, like for me, maybe the, the best moment was getting my first director's job at 26. It was like, you know, I'd been grinding for, for already like nine years, maybe just, just teaching a ton. Yeah. And when you get that director's moment, it doesn't mean that life gets easier. It doesn't, but it's just, you know, you're competing against a lot of great candidates for these jobs. Yeah. So I, re I remember being so happy because it's such a grind to, to be an assistant pro and, and you're, you're doing so much work and now having the ability to be financially rewarded and being rewarded with a really nice title. That was kind of the, the way to get in and to getting it at an early age. is difficult because that's very people, early. 26. Yeah, that was, that, that was, yeah, that was super early. And, and it's difficult because at that age, you know, and I look, at least at the time I look super young, I probably looked like I was like 19. It's very hard for people to want to hire someone that looks really young because then you you equate that with lack of experience. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a really big deal, and I got very lucky too because I was uh, I was hitting at the club that I was at. I was hitting with Elon Lando a lot. He's, he was a member of the club, and we became very close friends. And completely out of the blue, the person that was hiring me for this director's job knew Elon very well, and he was listed on one of my references, and so. That probably sealed the deal for me to get to get that job because they probably called Yvonne and you give a good recommendation. So you know, you have to, the, the hard thing about our business is you have to get lucky. You know, it's, yeah. it's 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 sadly for a director director's jobs for the most part it's about who you know. It's not it's not always the best candidate that takes the job. I'd like to think I was the best candidate, but I'm sure there were people that were that probably had more experience and better background. So yeah, it was it does want to go on because it was such a relief to get to fight so hard and to get a director's job it's a you can breathe now you made it if you do a good job opportunities will come you know it's kind of like these tennis pros in the non-federer Djokovic and Nadal area getting their first grand slam is you know Dominic team is a great example who can't play tennis anymore one because he was injured but when he won that grand slam during that era you didn't expect to win it and yeah so that was, was such a big move because at the time it was only three guys that were winning grand slams so that was it. Uh, worst moment. I don't know if there's such a worst moment. I mean, I've definitely been double bagel one time. Man. Talk about double bagel. I've been double bagel in, in panel one time, and that was probably my worst moment in terms of in terms of playing career. I've been double bagel once, and I couldn't believe it was possible. Um, that, because, for a couple of nights, almost considered quitting when I was, I was younger. I was just starting out. I thought I was really good, and I guess I really wasn't. But you know, maybe the one thing that that's tougher for me is that uh, what's been tough maybe is the the politics that go on at clubs. Yeah, so much politics. You know, and as you get older, it's harder to it's harder to manage the politics that go on. Not not so much like places like the boathouse because it's a summer club. People are there. It's more like a resort. People are there to have fun. It's the secondary club, the secondary home, so they're way more relaxed. But but the year-round jobs are really hard to deal with the politics when you're dealing with. You know, people that expect to play in certain lines during the matches when they really belong, like four lines below. Oh, yeah. That's it. That's probably what, what drives me mad the most. Huh? Those different dynamics. It's also quite interesting, you know, at member-owned clubs. A lot of these really great clubs, a lot of times, are member-owned. And I've heard of so many cases where a pro's been there for a while and and they've done such an amazing job. Everybody loves them, and then maybe like one member has something against them, and they end up losing their job. And it's like, yeah, yeah. 
know, crazy that you can lose your job for one person not liking you. Maybe now they're on the board and boom, you're out. You know, it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's, that's unfortunately the nature of our business. There's, you have to be, that's why you have to be really sharp because it doesn't take much to, if you upset the wrong member with the wrong connections, that's, that could be the end of your, of your career fairly quickly or the end of that job. You couldn't have said, you couldn't have said something more true. It's, it's, and that's why I think, again, it goes back to, you have to really create a fun vibe so that even maybe the people that don't like you as much as others really are, are still liking the program enough that they won't speak against you. Yeah. It's, it's difficult for sure. Yeah. What do you think is the most exciting thing in tennis right now? In anything? In, in general, Carlos, Carlos Alcaraz and Iga Swiatek. I mean, those guys are. Yes. Those are my favorite. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're incredible. I mean, Carlitos just, I mean, there's also a lot of good guys coming up, but, but he reminds me of a little bit of Federer, you know, in his, his ability of shot making a little bit like Djokovic and his ability to be so consistent mm-hmm. and a little bit like Nadal and his fighting and playing from behind and, and playing under pressure. I mean, it's, I didn't think we'd see somebody close to those guys. And he, yeah, I hope, yeah. I hope that he is that guy. He seems like he could take over tennis. He's just playing at a different level. He's such a shot maker. He's so fun to watch. I hope he doesn't get injured. He's fantastic. And on the women's side, I mean, he got short, I think, 21 years old. He's already won multiple grand slams. She destroys everyone. The confidence, like, the maturity, you know, like, now, like, these last 10 years, like, players mature up way later than they used to back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Now, like, the, the maximum is players mature at 27. So to see Carlito, like, like, 19 years old, or 20, I think he's 19. And he got, I think, just turned 21. To see them dominating, like, these incredible matches at such an early age i mean it's it's incredible that they're that good i'm amazed by you she she smokes everybody and she wants it so bad i really love that she's great yeah and max how can how can people find you if they want to reach out to you they have any questions maybe an email or are you on social media or anything like that yeah i'm not a huge social media guy is on social media which is my paddle camp you know we do these paddle camps you know people can reach out to me through there that's maybe the only social media that i keep um, you know, but I, but you can reach me by email, lepiveramax at gmail.com for any questions. And yeah, I'm, I'm always around and I'm always here to help in the industry. I, I always want what's best for, for our incoming generation of, of, of pros and, and how we make, we can make the business better. I think what you're doing is, is fantastic. It's such a good resource to have to have these podcasts and to, to help kind of the, the people that are looking for this business and to see it as a legitimate business and not just as a, Right. You know, I gig to make some money until something else, you know, something better comes along. It, it, there's really a way to make this a good job, but you're right. We need some parameters and we need people like you to kind of to kind of help and in, in, in getting more knowledge out there. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for talking with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think we covered some some really good topics today. So thank you so much. I know you're super busy. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you, Max. Take care. Thank you all for listening to Vita Tennis. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Max as much as I did. I really appreciate how honest and candid he was with our conversation. I am sure some of you out there can relate to some of the things we mentioned. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave me a review, rate the show so others can find it. You also may want to subscribe so you get notified when new episodes come out each week. You can follow Vita Tennis on Instagram. The handle is simply Vita Tennis Podcast or email me at 
vitatennispodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.